Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening far and wide. And I'm guessing if you live in snow country and you own a classic car, it's about time for you to get it ready for springtime driving. So when you're airing up the tires and checking all the fluids, I'll be here to keep you company. And don't forget to smash that follow button, click that five-star rating, leave me a review, share the show with your friends. All of those things help me reach more gearheads like you. All right, well, we're going to get right into it today with the story of Vasek Polak, a Czechoslovakian immigrant who escaped from behind the Iron Curtain and built a thriving dealership network and racing team in America. It's a remarkable story that I'm going to tell with the help of his son, Vasek Polak Jr. And that's coming up right after this. Hey guys, let me tell you what's new at Model Citizen Diecast. First, there's the incredible Mercedes-Benz 300 SL Roadster in 118th scale, and it even comes with fitted luggage. Then there's the 1995 Lamborghini Diablo SE30 Yota in metallic purple. These are extremely limited edition scale models, so reserve yours now at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. And my listeners get 10% off with the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. For nearly 40 years, the name Vasek Polak was practically synonymous with Porsche in the United States. He was the first independent Porsche dealer in the country. And there was a time that if you wanted to race a Porsche on the West Coast, you'd have known him personally. But before all that, he led a harrowing and sometimes dangerous life cheating death and staying one step ahead of the thugs that seized power in his native Czechoslovakia after World War II. Vasek Polak was born in Prague in 1914. His father was a government minister, and he expected his son to follow the same sensible career path. Well, he was uh, quite a colorful person. That's the voice of Vasek Polak Jr. His father was a minister of interior, and uh, he wanted his son to follow the father's steps, even though he wasn't the eldest son, he was the youngest son. But Vasek knew he wasn't built for office work or taking orders from a long line of superiors. And he said to me, he said, I said to myself, never, this will never be what I want to do. He was a restless maverick who started racing motorcycles in his teens, and he was interested in all sorts of mechanical things. His father helped him get a job at the Praga Company, which was basically the General Motors of Czechoslovakia. They made everything from motorcycles and buses to luxury cars and even airplanes. It was not really what he wanted to do. He wanted to discourage him from doing this. And so he rang up the head of a Praga factory and said, I need the most rotten job you can have for my son to discourage him from doing this. And he said, send him over. I'll give him the most rotten job I know. So he became an apprentice in the foundry, casting engine blocks and other parts for commercial trucks. It might as well have been Dante's Inferno, pouring molten iron into sand casting molds. When they saw that he's not going to quit, the director said, you can go and look how the gearboxes are put together. So he had been transferred from this little hell to a little bit nicer place. He was now learning to assemble industrial gearboxes, but there was just one problem. The shop foreman had a nasty temper. One time when they were working on this gearbox for like a week and they were completely done with the gearbox 
And he said, I need some cutter pins. And he was afraid of this guy. He brings the cutter pins and he's giving it to him. And the guy doesn't put a hand underneath. And when he lets go, the cutter pin box falls into the gearbox. And he knew that he is going to have to run for his life because this guy is going to kill him. And he said, I was running through the shop and suddenly this Hummer came flying by me. The guy threw a Hummer at him. You know, so he had some really interesting beginning. But he had bigger ideas. He started a machine shop. He was doing all kinds of stuff. Then he had an idea to go back to the factory and talk to the headman and uh, said, what would it be that I can help you the most and help myself as well? And uh, he said, the biggest problem we have is with crankshafts. We have this very fancy Italian machine that grinds crankshafts. And they were incredibly busy at the time. And he said, this is our biggest block. And he said, what about if I would get a machine like you? There was only one in the entire Czechoslovakia. And uh, you give me all the business. And he goes, done. So suddenly this glorious machine arrives. He was a pretty clever guy. You know, this is what basically boils down to. It was a prosperous business. But after years of tension with Nazi Germany, a region of Czechoslovakia known as the Sudetenland was annexed by Hitler in October of 1938. The following March, the government in Prague simply gave up, and the entire country fell under Hitler's control. And the man in charge of the occupation was none other than SS Obergruppenführer Reinhard Heydrich. He was assigned by Hitler to Prague to be basically like a governor of Bohemia. Heydrich was the primary architect of the Holocaust, and his treatment of the Czechs earned him a nickname, the Butcher of Prague. But the resistance fought with determination, and even succeeded in assassinating Heydrich. He was driving everywhere in open Mercedes-Benz, and when he was coming back, there's a very tight turn, and they were waiting for him, and they threw a grenade, and it didn't explode. So then they killed him with machine guns, but as a retaliation, it was a little village called Lidice. They arrived to Lidice and killed everybody, just wiped it out from the, from the face of the earth like the village never existed. In the closing days of the war, as Patton's Third Army approached from the west and the Soviet Red Army bore down from the east, the Czechs battled surrounded German forces. In Prague, the Germans had wired all the bridges along the Vltava River to explode. Somehow the underground found out about it. My father and Captain Engler, who was a military officer, and he was very highly trained in deactivating bombs and, you know, whatever, they decided that they're going to go and try to deactivate all of this. And so my father was driving to the, to the places and the fellow would climb underneath the bridges and uh, cut the wires. But there were German armored units guarding the far side of the riverbank, and their vehicle took fire. And he got shot, and it came out in the back. Missed his heart. He was laying in a hospital, and the doctor said, you know, he has a lot of blood clots inside of him. If he moves, it will be over. And apparently my father is saying... I am all okay. Why don't you just get me out of here? I need to go back to, you know, to my place. So, you know, he survived it, obviously. When the war ended, Vashek returned to work in his machine shop. 
In the next few years, though, the country was gripped by internal political struggle and the Communist Party took control. After the war, things were changing and the big Praga factory got run over by the people that the commies appointed. It really didn't matter whether you knew anything about it. They looked at who had been the longest in the Communist Party and that guy got the president's job. It didn't matter whether he knew anything about it, right? That's how they operate. So one of the friends decided, okay, we need to penetrate this thing that is going on. So I'm going to become a communist. So they all laughed, but suddenly realized, you know, that that's a good way to find out what's next. And he said, one day, the guy that was the spy, so to speak, comes in and he said, Vashik, you are next. And he goes, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, they confiscated all the important, huge things, and you are next. And he said, and then it's going to be so bad, they will go down, down, down to uh, little ice cream stores and shoe repair shops, and they will confiscate everything, and everything will be stable. And he said, you just need to be prepared. And the guy said, oh, by the way, I need to tell you how this is going to happen. There will be guys, not unlike the SS, you know, long leather coats. They come incredibly important to tell you that they want to see as to how your operation is doing. And then when they are done, they would say, we have some more questions for you. So you need to come with us to town. And if you do that, if you get into the car, you are coming back five years later, totally penniless with nothing. And they will confiscate everything you have because you are unable to run it anymore. And that will be it. And my father, if you knew my father, he couldn't sit, you know, very, very active all the time and all of this. And this is exactly what happened. Vashek knew he could trust his secretary, who was a family friend. So they planned a simple diversion. Suddenly, you know, these fancy cars outside and all these guys come in. And they were walking through the factory and they get to the very end and he knew what was happening. The secretary knew what was happening. Uh, the announcement on the, on the intercom, you need to come and sign this just one minute or two. So he excuses himself and walks back to the office, comes out, sits in her car and disappears. But what he didn't know is that he wouldn't see his family again for 16 years. I was one year old and I crossed the kitchen for the first time on my own feet the day he left. Vasek made his way to the Polish border. No one would suspect that he would escape one communist country for another. And then he carefully moved toward Germany and freedom. There was one problem. Getting to the German border was tricky, but through a friend, he was able to get a job harvesting timber in the forest along the German frontier, under the suspicious and watchful eye of Polish border guards. Under this cover, it might give him the best chance to slip away. One night in the old hotel where the timber crews were staying, a curious guard began staring at him and asking questions. So this guy is sitting next to him, chatting, and he goes, what do you like to do for fun? And he said, oh, I am a big horse lover. I just love to ride horses, which he did. But, you know, his big passion was motorcycles, right? And he keeps looking at them. And he said, you know, I thought when you said horses, that you would say motorcycles. And he said, no, no, I don't like motorcycles. He said, well, there's a guy in Prague. His name is Vasek Polak. And he rides motorcycles like no one else. 
I am an enormous fan of him. You can be his brother or, you know, you, you look just like him. The father was like, somebody just came and stuck a knife in him. That night, Vashek slipped into the darkness and made his way through the forest. He said every step was like exploding grenades, you know, all these little twigs and all this stuff. And he would very carefully keep on going, keep on going. And he said, I could not believe that I made it. He had nightmares after this. He said, I had come to the bottom of a sand pit and I was trying to get out of the sand pit. And every time I was almost on the top, the sand just broke and broke me down to the bottom. He said, I would wake up sweating, shaking, you know, just because of the, of the emotional experience. He'd made it to the West and freedom. Ends up in a camp for Czechoslovakian refugees. Has some friends, Czech friends in Munich. And the Czech guy said, hey, I am working for U.S. Army. And they are looking for mechanics. And you were always a good mechanic. Why don't you come with me in the morning? And, and I introduced you to the people. And I'm sure you can you know, start working there tomorrow. I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage. Don't go away. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to tell you about Drive Toward a Cure, which is bringing cars and camaraderie together to benefit Parkinson's disease research and patient care. And here's how it works. They've got local events from coast to coast, like track days, road rallies, and even premium multi-day touring adventures. And there's even a car club challenge. It's a way for members of the car community to leverage their mutual passion to help a great cause. So if you want to get involved in an event near you or even help organize an event, you can find everything you need at drivetowardacure.org or on Instagram at drivetowardacure. And April is Parkinson's Awareness Month, so it's a perfect opportunity for you to become part of Drive Toward a Cure. You can be one in a million with your tax-deductible donation and help them cross the $1 million mark. Use and follow the hashtag BeOneInAMillion, and on behalf of Drive Toward a Cure, thanks for your support. Vashik worked in a U.S. Army motor pool until he was able to book passage to New York where he found a job at a General Motors plant upstate. But it was low-skill assembly work, and he was instantly bored. So he returned to Manhattan and walked into the service department of the Hoffman Motors Corporation. Max Hoffman was the most incredible Austrian fellow. You can look at virtually any European car post-war. Max was involved with it. Max Hoffman had been a racing driver and a successful Vienna car dealer but fled to New York amid the growing anti-Semitism in 1938. In 1948, he became the sole U.S. importer for Jaguar cars, just as the fabulous XK120 was released. His New York dealership soon became the headquarters of an automotive empire, selling Mercedes-Benz, Alfa Romeo, BMW, Volkswagen, and Porsche. Hoffman was responsible for convincing Mercedes to build the 300SL Gullwing, and for getting Porsche to build the 356 Speedster. He's even the man who designed the Porsche Crest. Clearly, Hoffman was the place to be. So he went into Max Hoffman's repair shop, and it was a German guy that ran it. And the guy said, come back in a week. And he goes, no, 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 no. I need a job now. Give me anything you have just to prove you that I can do it. 
He goes, okay, uh, there's a Volkswagen over there. It has something wrong with the gearbox. Would you take the engine off? So when the gearbox man comes tomorrow, he can have an easier time to find out what's wrong and all of this. So father being pretty clever, you know, he dragged the engine to the wash rack, spotlessly cleaned it and brought it back. And he said, I know what's wrong with the gearbox and I can fix it. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, before I took the engine out, I tried the gearbox, how it worked, and found out that it won't shift. There were known defects at the time with the fork that moved the gears or the synchron rings. So he said, let me take the gearbox out and open it up and then you can come and see whether I'm right. And it was sure enough, the fork was broken. So he fixed it, put it all back together. And he went to the guy and he said, maybe you should go and drive it around to see whether everything functions. And they were driving around and he leaned over and he said, by the way, you are hired. He proved to be an excellent mechanic and began tuning racing cars on the side. And he was particularly skilled with Porsche's four cam racing engine. Max was importing spiders, Porsche spiders. When the spider became available and uh, the, a lot of people were uh, racing the speedsters. And uh, when this new car came about, all of those that could have one immediately switched. The only problem was that the spider had a very special engine in it with brilliant design that utilized no chains. It was all shafts and gears and all this stuff. It was incredibly complicated. Therefore, also, it was incredibly expensive. It was designed by Ernst Furman, who had joined Porsche in its early days. The company's pushrod four-cylinders were showing their limits by the early 50s, so Furman was tasked with designing a new racing engine, and he was able to come up with the overhead cam design in an incredible six months' time. The twin-plug 1500cc four-cam could rev to 8,000 RPM, it made 110 horsepower, and it was an instant success in competition. In the mid-50s, the American sports car racing scene was hot and heavy, and in July 1956 at the races in Beverly, Massachusetts, Vasek met a driver named Jack McAfee. Jack comes from California with his spider and has some problems with it. And so he's kind of a really quite surprised because, you know, he makes the trip all the way across America and now the car is not running well. But somebody said, hey, there's this uh, Czechoslovakian guy uh, from Max Hoffman down the pit lane. You should go see him and see what he can help you with. So Jack comes out and taps my father on the shoulder and he explains to him what is not doing right. Father does whatever he does to it. Jack comes back completely elated. He said, the car never ran like this ever before. And there are so many cars in California that you should just come with me to California. And of course, that was all that father wanted. Vashik didn't wait long to follow his advice. So he is ready to proceed. And he is like two more, three more days in New York. He goes to say goodbye to Max Hoffman. And Max says, hey, Vashik, with all the money that uh, you have saved, why don't you buy Karman Gia from me? I sell it to you at my price as a thank you for all what you have done for me and and all the Porsche people in the in the east uh, that were racing the cars because when you take it to California you can sell it for considerably more so father calculated uh, that instantly 
And uh, I think it was like $1,500 difference, which at the time was a huge money because, you know, he basically sold it to him for two thirds what it would have been uh, uh, worth in California. And since every penny counted for him, he said yes. He loaded up his Volkswagen bus and with a brand new Carmen Ghia in tow, he set out for California. After a long cross-country trip, including a stop in Las Vegas, Vasek came to the end of Route 66, the Santa Monica Pier. He comes to the end and there's the Pacific Ocean. And he just can't believe how lucky he is. He looks to Malibu and sees very few little lights over there. He looks to Santa Monica, sees lots of lights over there. He said, more business that way. Makes a left turn and keeps on going until he hits Lincoln Boulevard. Comes to Manhattan Beach and he comes to the red light and he is completely mesmerized with this beautiful South Bay with the full moon on it. It's like midnight or so by the time they are there. And he says, okay, this is it. Within days, he rented a building. It had an address that must have carried some good luck. 356 South Sepulveda Boulevard. You know, suddenly people find out he's in California, those that knew, and those that didn't know learned shortly thereafter. And he said, I opened up, had no overhead. And he said, there are Porsche cars lined up on both sides of the street. The new shop was immediately busy, servicing 356s and the new 550 Spider. And Vasek was also able to sell cars from a small showroom. Wealthy California sportsman John Edgar was a fixture in sports car racing, running MGs and then a number of Ferraris, but also Porsches at the suggestion of Jack McAfee. John Edgar's son William recalls that Vasek was, quote, the best four-cam mechanic imaginable. Vasek was the only one known who could take down a four-cam 550 engine and have it back together and running in a matter of hours, not days. As his reputation and clientele grew, so too did the shop. And in 1959, he became the first standalone Porsche dealer in the United States. It started in Zuffenhausen through the people there, convincing Max Hoffman that there should be somebody in California since at the time half of the Porsche cars were sold in, in California. Max was the importer. And the distributor for California, Arizona, Utah, and Hawaii was also a very colorful Austrian, Johnny von Neumann. They were very friendly with Mrs. Piech, Porsche family lady that married uh, this prominent lawyer in, in Vienna, and she did all the business stuff. And of course, Johnny was very friendly to my father too, because despite of the fact that he had two factory mechanics himself, when they, when they were all done with it, he said, load it up and take it to Russia. So I wanted to make sure that it runs as he would prepare it. So that was pretty big endorsement. He had his own small racing operation, fielding a Type 718 RS60 Spider for the next several years. Meanwhile, the next step for Porsche was replacing the aging 356. That car came in 1963, known internally as the Type 901, with an air-cooled flat 6. And it was sold to the public as, of course, the 911. Hans Metzger came as a young engineer to Porsche, and he was tasked with the design of the famous six-cylinder engine that then went into the 911. In mid-1966, Porsche introduced the performance-oriented 911S, and Vasek took one off his showroom floor and race-prepared it for the United States Road Racing Championship Series in the D production class. 
By the time the car was ready, though, it was fairly late in the season, and they were at a points disadvantage. But a determined guy named Jerry Titus drove the car to the class championship. Victory in the Vashik Polak 911S was the start of a serious team at the national level. And based on that success, Porsche asked Vashik to join their factory team at the 12 Hours of Sebring the following year, attending to their Carrera 6s and the new 910, racing in the 2-liter class. Up to that time, the 910 had been set up for hill climbs in Europe, but this was a 12-hour endurance race on a road circuit, and a strong showing would do a lot for Porsche sales in North America. At Sebring, they took on the big four GTs and outlasted most of the 60-car field to take a class win, and the Porsches finished in five of the top 10 positions. Meanwhile, the dealership had outgrown the original building on Sepulveda Boulevard, so it moved south to a new location in Hermosa Beach. And if you want to imagine a perfect Southern California day in the mid-1960s, all you have to do is picture yourself sitting on the hood of your new 911, parked along the Strand in Hermosa, watching the sun go down. And in Vashek's personal life, a miracle happened. After requesting to emigrate to the United States every year since the early 50s, his wife, daughter, and Vashek Jr. were finally granted permission to leave Czechoslovakia. He always said to my mother, this will not last. This communism will not last. You know, maybe a year or so, I'm going to have to leave, but I'll be back. So nobody thought that this thing would, this, this atrocity, what they did to the Czech people would last 40 years. You know, 1964, about, the commies suddenly realized that they needed dollars and they needed some contact with the West. Things kind of uh, started to improve. And every year you were allowed to do one letter a year that you want to emigrate out of Czechoslovakia. And every year we had applied for this. Your application was disapproved because of, at least to my mother, your husband left Czechoslovakia illegally. And some signature from somebody that you never could uh, recognize. There was apparently some old guy that stood up and said, I think what we should do is to just let them go. The old old lady is getting old. The young ones will never be good communists anyway. We should just let them go. And they all voted for it. And how we found out was a really funny way. Uh, suddenly my cousin uh, went to the state uh, saving institution and the guy there was a big hockey fan. And my uncle was a very famous Czechoslovakian hockey trainer. And uh, he goes, come over here. And he goes, be quiet. He goes into his office, turns on the radio like crazy. And he sits next to him and whispers to his ear, I have a good news for you. The friend of mine that sits on this board, just we were having a discussion. And he said, would you believe we finally approved the Polak family to go to America? I think I was 18, so I didn't see him 17 years. Arriving in California was overwhelming after a life behind the Iron Curtain. Vashek Jr. worked for his father as a mechanic, and whenever possible, he went with him to the track. I would work in the shop, and there are all these German mechanics and all of this, and I would come, and I am trying to learn English. And I walk in, and I said, Good evening, everybody! And they all laughed their heads, and they go, No, 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 no. This is morning time. No, so it's good morning, everybody. 
You know, that's how I learned. Then came military service in the Air Force and college at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, after which he would return to his father's side. One of the drivers that got his start with Pollock was a guy from Fresno named Milt Minter. Milt Minter was working for us. Uh, he was an incredibly cool guy. And, you know, to realize how stratospherically he had risen, you know, that he drove in Le Mans and did all kinds of stuff, you know, because of the exposure that he got uh, from father. He came to us to work for us as a mechanic. And father said, what can you do? Uh, and he goes, whatever you need. And so he gave him these meaningless jobs to begin with. Then we found out from somebody that came to say hello to him that, you know, he was uh, really great in driving Formula V or something. You know, he was open wheeler. Father said, tell, you know, at dinner, he said, tell me more about this. And then during the dinner, he said, uh, if you could give me an opportunity, I can show, show you what I can do. We went to a test with a brand new 911 we got from the factory. He was really quick, and father had a big smile on his face. So for the next race, father decided, okay, you going to drive the car? The first race of the season was in the high desert north of Los Angeles at Willow Springs Raceway. And one of the cars they would compete against was the intriguing new Toyota 2000 GT. Shelby brought the Toyota, but Scooter Patrick drove the Toyota for Shelby. And they had a race like you wouldn't believe. And since, you know, they both knew each other, they were not giving themselves one inch. You know, if you close the door on me, I'm going to let you know that I'm here. Bam. And the race was just one of the most incredible races I have attended. And Milt won it ahead of the Toyota. And I think he did it in the very last lap, you know, passing him somewhere in the back that nobody ever passed or something. I mean, it was just totally cool. Otto Zipper was an Austrian immigrant and a Beverly Hills car dealer, and he sold Ferraris, Alfa Romeos, and BMWs, and like Vasek, he had his own racing team. And when all came back to the pits, Otto came by and said, if you're going to keep him, it will cost you a lot of money. And father and Otto, they admired each other, but not that much. In the business world, they were competitors. There was always a friction between father and Otto. And he said, Otto. Don't worry about it, because you're not going to be paying for it. In 1969, Vasek hired a young German mechanic named Alvin Springer. He and I were like brothers. He was, beside father, he was the main man. Uh, he was basically what you would call chief mechanic. Like on this Carrera 6 that we made that looked like uh, a 312 Ferrari, because father returns back from Europe. And he said, we're going to change the body. Uh, and then we went to runoffs to Atlanta, and we won the runoffs with the car. And by 1971, they were racing the mighty Porsche 917 in the Can-Am series. The 917 was a sports prototype developed for endurance racing, and specifically to give Porsche their first overall win at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. The car's mastermind was Hans Metzger, Porsche's director of motorsport, who designed an exotic flat 12-cylinder engine that proved to be not just powerful, but incredibly strong and reliable. In the Can-Am series, which had very few rules on construction and engine displacement, Porsche began to turbocharge the 12-cylinder. And a factory racing mechanic named Valentin Scheffer was their resident turbocharging specialist. There is a 16-cylinder that Hans made, you know, trying to take advantage of this 
unlimited displacement. And when they run it on a dyno and got the numbers and all of this, it was the beginning of the turbo era. There was this 100% reliable, wonderful 917 engine by then. And they decided, hey, you know, we can get more power out of a 12-cylinder turbocharged. So let's let's concentrate on that. And Valentin Schaeffer, who was the, the main engine guy beside Hans Metzger, we, we met in 1967 in L.A. I love him dearly. He was always incredibly friendly to me. And I remember Valentin flying into L.A. And uh, we had some nice evenings together. And he spent a lot of time at the Garrett Air Research. Then they built up upon that. And uh, the 917 uh, turbocharged engine was pretty incredible. Uh, you know, the regular one that in Le Mans ran, you know, then it was developed to the point that it was very reliable and it could take additional extra everything. You know, Valentin always was uh, funny because he says, yeah, yeah, Hans Metzger, Hans Metzger, he only draw it up. But then I had to order the parts. I had to make sure the parts were correct. I had to make sure that they fit together. I assembled them. I put a, the final engine on the dyno and then call Hans to, to see it come alive. Uh, but now, you know, it's kind of funny because now that Hans is gone, Valentin is finally re- receiving the accolades that he should have always had. The 1973 Can-Am season was pretty well dominated by the 917s. There was Vashek's car driven by Jody Schechter and also Hurley Haywood driving for Brumos, as well as Mark Donahue driving for Roger Penske. 1973, when we were running the 917 with Jody Schechter, I came with the idea of on that the little spoiler on the big win, you know, I saw Penske's having Goodyear on it. I said to Father, why don't we have a Washek Polak on? Because when the cars are following each other, you see nothing, but you can see Goodyear on Mark's car. So that was actually my idea. And there are pictures from Atlanta. Uh, there are like three 917s coming, and there's uh, Jody right behind Mark. And the only thing you see is that the upper part portion of the 917 link, where it says Vashek Polak. And I came up with the idea from uh, seeing the Goodyear sign. Can-Am was canceled after the 1974 season, and Alvin Springer left Polak to co-found the famed Porsche high-performance tuning outfit known as Andial. Andial was the shop in America to do Porsche. Three guys. The guy that ran our parts department, Wagner. Dieter, the lead mechanic in the shop, and Alvin. And eventually Springer became the president of Porsche Motorsports North America. In the late 1970s, Vashek Polak Racing campaigned the Porsche 934, a racing version of the road-going turbo, and they won the Trans Am Championship with George Fulmer behind the wheel. And the Vashek Polak dealership network had grown by leaps and bounds, selling not just Porsche, but also Audi, BMW, Volkswagen, Saab, and Subaru. As he grew older, Vashek didn't really seem to be slowing down. The dealerships continued to thrive, and he had a showroom full of his retired racing machines, from the RSKs all the way to the 917s. It was an impressive legacy, to say the least. But on a trip to Germany in 1997, he crashed a new 911 Turbo S on the Autobahn, and he suffered multiple injuries. After being stabilized, he was flown back to the U.S., but as the plane was refueling in Great Falls, Montana, he suffered a heart attack and died. He was 82 years old. The Pollock family continues to have a close relationship with Porsche enthusiasts, many of whom fell in love with the brand after visiting one of their showrooms. 
Vasek Polak's memory lives on as the Vasek Polak Collection, and the definitive book on his life and legacy will soon be published. You can learn more at VasekPolakCollection.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes. My thanks to Vasek Polak Jr. for sharing stories of his father, his family, and a life around all those amazing cars. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, follow the show, click that five-star rating, and leave me a review. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, May 4th for more of the people and the stories behind the machines. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.